Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. I recently came across an article that really made me smile. This was 25 of the silliest recent arguments in churches. So in each of these arguments, you had people who disagreed, uh, they took sides, a meeting was called, like a, a church meeting was called, and one group was prepared to remove the other group from the church. You see, uh, one of those disagreements was about the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Okay, can you imagine that? Another time, a number of church members sent around a petition, and they actually collected signatures on this petition requiring the staff to be clean-shaven. Well, another time, it was a, a meeting to decide whether the women's washroom should have dividers between the stalls. Another argument was over whether communion should use grape juice or grape juice mixed with cranberry juice. This was a this was a church debate. This was a discussion or a fight between the members of this church. And another time, it was a whole elders meeting that was gathered in order to discuss how to deal with a staff member who wouldn't tuck in his shirt on the stage. Okay, can you imagine that? And I will say, fun fact, one of those is a real-life story that I was part of. Uh, and so... The pattern, though, is that in each of these cases, and, and certainly there's, you've probably seen some examples of, of some of this, but, but in each of these stories, it became personal. Somebody had a problem with something that somebody else was doing, and, some, and that person said, we cannot possibly deal with that. We can't tolerate someone like that in our church. We need to stop that, and if we can't stop it, we need them to leave. And it seems to me that's exactly what's going on in today's woe. Now this morning we're continuing through our series called Woes, Seven Things the Church Must Stop Altogether Because Jesus Says So. Well, in the first week we saw that the Pharisees started really well, actually. And if the Pharisees could get lost, if the Pharisees could get off track very, very badly, then really any of us could. And so we shouldn't take for granted that we will always love Jesus and we will always love the gospel. That was a really important lesson. Then in the first woe, we saw that the Pharisees were dividing God's people. We learned that the church is one and the church is many at the same time. In the second woe, we saw that the Pharisees were being pushy and kind of coercive and colonial in their approach to evangelism. And we learned that the church is sent, even if not as evangelists, certainly the church is sent as ambassadors of Jesus. Last week when we were together, this was the third woe, we saw that the Pharisees were behaving like consumers. And so we we talked about consumer Christianity, and we learned that the church needs to count the costs and figure out ways to get our consumerism in check. And now when we're together next week, it's going to be a different sort of a format. Rather than me doing all the talking, it's going to be a conversation between myself and a friend named Zeb Demeter. He's a social worker at McMaster. He's going to be, he's one half of the team who is coming to do the emotion-based parenting webinar with us in a, in a couple of weeks. But Zeb and I are going to have a conversation about parenting. And the reason is because the woe next week is about why it's so easy to focus on the outside and to ignore what's going on on the inside. And so Zeb and I are going to be talking about how that applies to parenting. It's going to be really, I think it's going to be really helpful. So, so please do join us for that. 
But for today's woe, what's going to be really helpful actually is if we can learn to understand the difference between a gnat and a camel. All right? Now, maybe that seems obvious to you. But if you're a Pharisee, it's actually harder than it sounds. Now, let's talk about what, what these are here. A gnat, and there's one here on screen now, a gnat is a tiny flying insect. It's about a quarter inch long. It's super tiny. It's about the size of a grain of rice, okay? Now, what if you ate one of those? Would you want to eat one of those? No, of course you wouldn't. If you did, though, you might be grossed out, but it's not serious. So you do want to strain that out. If one lands in your soup, you don't want to swallow it. You want to strain it out. But it's not actually going to kill you. It's not that serious. On the other hand, there's such a thing as a camel. And if, if you don't know what a camel is, a camel is actually a very large, heavy, dumb, stinky mammal that lives in the desert. All right? Huge and heavy. And if you ate one of those, what happens? Well, you're dead. Okay, so that's a very large problem. So putting these side by side, a gnat and a camel, one is a very tiny problem. The other is a very big problem. You, we get that? We get the, how the metaphor works here? Okay, good. So this might seem obvious to us, but the Pharisees don't get it. They don't get it. Now, here's what I mean. Suppose you've got a Pharisee and that Pharisee's got a garden and that Pharisee's garden is, is super help, healthy and grows like 10 pounds of herbs like mint and dill and cumin that year, okay? Now, come harvest time, should that Pharisee donate some of what came in, some of what grew, should he donate it to the synagogue or should he keep it all for himself? Well, obviously, he should donate it. He should tithe on what his garden grew. Now, what if he doesn't? What's the worst that happens? Well, if he doesn't do that, if he doesn't tithe on his herbs, he, then somebody might accuse him of being greedy. Now, God forbid somebody calls a Pharisee greedy, but that's actually not a huge problem as, as problems go. Like Jesus would say that that is a gnat. But suppose there is a new kid in town, okay? He's skinny, he's kind of awkward, he's artsy, not into sports. And after synagogue every week, the other boys call him cruel names and they chase him down and they beat him up every single week. And they think that they are toughening him up. They think they're doing him a favor, but it's, it's getting to the point where this boy is actually terrified to go outside. Now, when the Pharisees find out about that, should they stop it? Should they deal with it? Or should they, like, should they just leave it alone and stay out of it? Of course, they should stop it. Of course. Now, what if they don't? Well, if they don't, then that boy could be seriously harmed or even killed. And that would be a very large problem. Like Jesus would call that a camel. Now, suppose it's the same Pharisees who can't stand the thought of being called greedy. And they're the same Pharisees who won't lift a finger to stop the bullies. Well, that's much more serious, isn't it? That's a much larger problem. And, and, and suppose that these Pharisees can be trusted to, you know, you can count on them to show up when you're doing work on the Sabbath to kick you out of the synagogue because you're working on Sabbath. But these same Pharisees won't show up for you at the hospital. Suppose they'll kick you out over unwashed hands. But when it comes to men who put those hands on women, these Pharisees are going to stay out of it. Well, what would you call that? 
Well, guess what Jesus calls it? Calls it. He calls them blind guides. They are blind guides. No wonder Jesus says, woe to you, like shame on you. Shame on you. How dare you? You think God is pleased? God wants justice and mercy and faithfulness. God wants you to deal with the real problems, the real threats. You're blind, you Pharisees. You're blind. You, you can't even judge the difference between a gnat and a camel. So, so do, we, do we get the metaphor? Like there are, there are certain kinds of sins and certain kinds of sinners that these Pharisees can't tolerate, and yet they neglect all sorts of very serious problems that Jesus himself calls the more important matters. Do you see that? Jesus calls these the more important matters, and they're totally neglecting it. Now, how many people here, maybe by a show of hands, how many of you have seen or experienced something like that in the church? Like you've, you've witnessed it when church leaders like nitpick and they, you know, dig in their heels over a, 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 what seems like a, a really little problem and they ignore the, the far more serious ones. How many of you have seen something like that? Yeah, yeah, more, more than half of us. Well, I, I just finished a book this week called Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. And the author is a woman named Bridget Eileen Rivera. She's, uh, she identifies as a lesbian, and she's also committed to celibacy uh, because of her devotion to Jesus and also because of what she sees in Scripture. And in her book, she shares story after story of the ways that churches strain out gnats and swallow camels in this conversation about sexuality and sexual orientation in ways that we don't strain out gnats and camels when it comes to other sin issues. And so she suggests, and I quote, under all the talk about family values and biblical teaching, a much more hostile commitment lingers. Even if LGBTQ people go by the rule book, commit to celibacy, and follow traditional teaching, it's often not enough. At the end of the day, it's not progressivism that many oppose, it's LGBTQ people themselves. And listen, I think she's right. I, she's not wrong. And that's not a gnat. That's not a gnat. The double standard when it comes to people of differing sexual orientations, that is, that is not a gnat. That's a camel in the church for us today. Well, another example is uh, unfolding among the Southern Baptists right now. Uh, if you don't know, Southern Baptists tend to be pretty conservative. Like in most Southern Baptist churches, you wouldn't see a woman speaking at the front of the room, you know, let alone teaching. And so what Heather did this morning in leading us through the good news candle, that would be shocking. That would be unheard of. Okay, that would that would just shock too many people in the church. And And interestingly, a few years ago, there was an investigation that began into allegations of clergy sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. And when it began, when the investigation began, some of the leaders in the SBC objected. And I, I read the report recently, or most of it, and at one point they, they quote a number of the leaders who thought that the investigation should stop. Some of them called it a distraction. One of, the, one of them is a pastor. He says, this whole thing, this abuse investigation, this whole thing should be seen for what it is. It is a satanic scheme to completely distract us from evangelism. 
He says, it is not the gospel, this thing about bringing just, abusers to justice. This is not the gospel. It's not even part of the gospel. It is a misdirection play. Well, as time went on and the investigation wrapped up, the results were actually pretty damning. And the investigators shared that over the last like 20 years or so, more than 700 cases of abuse happened separately. 700 separate cases of abuse. And almost every time, the leaders covered it up and they protected the accused, and they asked the victims to keep silent. Now, over the years, some Southern Baptists stayed and tried to fix things from within. Well, a couple of those were Beth Moore and, and Russell Moore. Both of them are great. Um, and, but as time went on, they realized they're actually part of a culture that strains out gnats and swallows camels. And so a few days ago, Russell Moore wrote for Christianity Today, he said, Who cannot now see the rot in a culture that mobilizes to exile churches that call a woman on staff a pastor, or that invite a woman to speak from the pulpit on Mother's Day, but dismiss rape and molestation as distractions? Russell Moore says, In sectors of today's SBC, women wearing leggings is a social media crisis. Dealing with rape in the church is a distraction. So in other words, Southern Baptists have been focusing on gnats and ignoring the camels. Now, how does this happen? Like, you'd think that by now, the, the church can tell the difference between a gnat and a camel. So why is this happening? Well, we need to have a conversation about this. We need to ask, why are we shocked and offended by certain things and not others? We need to ask why, in so many parts of the church, the difference between what is tolerable and intolerable really has very little to do with God or his word, if we're honest. Like, if we're honest, the, the reason why we are shocked and offended by some sin issues and not others really has very little to do with God and his word. It actually comes down to who or what those Christians personally find shocking. And so it seems to me the best way that I could serve us today is just to help us to be reminded of, this, of the scandalous nature of the gospel. Like if we can internalize this, if we, could, if we could take the good news of Jesus and truly internalize it, I think it's going to shape us and it's going to save us from harming people. And so let's just see how Jesus did it. All right, let's take a few minutes to revisit some of the times when Jesus was face to face with sinners and he had to make a decision about whether to deal with the gnat or the camel. Okay, so come with me here for a few minutes. One of these times, Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. Okay, he's there for a dinner party. And this story is told in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to, just to set it up, imagine there's this dinner party. Jesus is the guest of honor. Simon, the Pharisee, is the host. And Jesus and all the guests are chatting. And, and then they realize they have an uninvited guest in the room. And according to Luke, the author, he says she is, quote, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. She's not even named, but she's described as having lived a sinful life. And she's hiding there. She's weeping behind Jesus until finally she comes forward and she gets down on the ground and she washes Jesus' feet. She uses her tears to wet them. She dries her, his feet with her hair and she pours out this expensive perfume all over Jesus' feet. And the, and, and the guests there, the other guests, and, the, and Simon, the host, they're watching this, and they are shocked. 
Simon is shocked. He's shocked. He, he's like, if Jesus were any kind of a prophet, surely he would know what kind of a woman this is. Surely Jesus would know that she is a sinner. Surely Jesus would know that she's not even supposed to be here. Like, What is someone like that doing fawning all over the rabbi's feet? Now, it's interesting. Jesus isn't shocked by this at all. He's not, Simon is shocked, but Jesus is not shocked. Simon sees only one problem here. The, this, the problem that Simon sees is that you've got a sinner in here. She's getting all touchy-feely with the rabbi's feet, and that's his problem. Now, that's maybe that's a problem, but it's actually just a gnat-sized problem. Because from Jesus' point of view, there is a far bigger problem. There is this woman who is broken and humble and repentant and ashamed and full of regret and repentance. And, and they want to kick her out. Meanwhile, Simon and the Pharisees are looked at like they're the role models in that culture. Like they condemn people like her and they honor people like Simon. And from Jesus' point of view, that is not a gnat. From Jesus' point of view, that's a camel. And so he goes into full rabbi mode and he teaches them. He points out that the real problem in this story isn't what she did. It's what Simon didn't do. She gets down. She washes his feet. She anoints Jesus. Simon wouldn't even offer a bowl of water with which Jesus could wash his feet. And and Jesus has just proven that someone like her is the real disciple, not someone like Simon. Do you get that? Jesus is saying that the woman has just proven that she's the real disciple, not Simon. And so in this story, Jesus doesn't begin by dealing with her sin. He doesn't begin with the gnat. He begins with the camel. And when he does, it takes care of the gnat. Do you see that? When Jesus deals with the camel, it takes care of the gnat. At least that's his approach here in this story. Maybe that's a one-off. Maybe it's a one-off, but I, I don't think it is. Because here's another story. This time it's Jesus coming face to face with a wee little man. And the wee little man was he. It's Jesus and Zacchaeus. And this story is told in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 9. And Jesus is coming into the town of Jericho. And everybody in Jericho knows who Zacchaeus is. Zacchaeus is this rich, greedy tax collector. And he got that way by overtaxing the poor. Now he's just a little fella, so he climbs a tree. And of all the people in town... Jesus picks Zacchaeus out of the crowd and decides to go to, to Zacchaeus' house and visit him. And the people don't like it. They're shocked by that. They're shocked that Jesus chose Zacchaeus over them. And so in verse 7, it says that they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Oh no, guys. Zacchaeus is a sinner. What is Jesus doing in the home of someone like that. That's the problem that they see. They see one problem here. Zacchaeus is a bad guy. Uh, the rabbi can't possibly go into the home of someone like that. Now for Jesus, maybe that that's a problem at some level, but for Jesus, it's actually a gnat-sized problem. Jesus doesn't even mention Zacchaeus's personal sin. He doesn't mention Zacchaeus's greed or how he's been overtaxing people. From Jesus' point of view, there is a larger problem and the larger problem is that the people of Jericho think that they can judge who the real sinners are. 
Like they think they know whose sins are terrible and whose sins are tolerable. And you got to understand from Jesus' point of view, that is not a gnat. That's a camel. That's a very serious problem. And Jesus won't have it. And so he goes to Zacchaeus' house and he spends time with Zacchaeus and it changes Zacchaeus. It's the grace of Jesus that changes Zacchaeus and, it, and, and causes Zacchaeus to promise to repay what he stole. Now, nobody's saying Zacchaeus wasn't a sinner all along. Nobody's saying that his sins aren't a problem. We're saying that that's a gnat and not a camel. And so here again, what we see is that when Jesus deals with the camel, it also takes care of the gnat. Okay? Well, here's one more example. This one is another familiar story. It's Jesus and the woman at the well. And this happens in John chapter 4. So Jesus meets a Samaritan woman who is kind of an outcast. And this time, it's not the townspeople who are objecting, but she herself is the one objecting. She can't believe that Jesus would speak with someone like her. In fact, the disciples can't either, because at the end of the story, when they come back and they find Jesus talking to her, in verse 27, and I really like how the New Living Translation says this, it says, they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her, or why are you talking with her? You see, they're all shocked. The apostles are all shocked, but no one is more shocked than she is. And so throughout this conversation, she raises all these obstacles, all these objections. Like, Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. I can't pretend I'm not a Samaritan. I was born this way. I can't just change that. Okay. In verse 11, the problem is that Jesus has no bucket. So how's he going to get this water? In verse 17, the problem is that she has no husband. Like, Jesus, what, how, how can I possibly go and talk to my husband about this when, when I have no husband? In verse 20, the problem is that there's this theological dispute over which mountain is the right place for, for, for worship. And on and on. And she sees all these reasons why it's just, it's not going to work for me to be a follower of yours, Jesus. Now, from Jesus' point of view, these problems are tiny. Okay? These are gnats. These are not camels. There's a bigger problem. It's that this woman has been made to believe that God could never accept her. Like, she's been made to believe that because she's got so much baggage, because she's made so many bad choices, because her life and her story are so messy, she's an outcast, and, and she's become sure God would never want someone like her. God could never accept someone like her. And for Jesus, that's the bigger problem. That's the camel in this story. And so, Jesus persists, and he makes sure that she knows that he sees her and he hears her. He, he wants her to understand that from his perspective, her life matters. and He cares about her. And in fact, she's going to become the first person to ever hear Jesus say out loud that he is the Messiah. Of all the people that Jesus could have revealed that information to, she's the one who learns first before anybody else that Jesus is the Messiah. And it changes her. And she goes on from there and she preaches about Jesus to the whole town. And so here again, what we see is that Jesus deals with the camel and it takes care of the gnat as well. Now, we could go on and on with other examples. We could talk about Jesus and the naked demon-possessed man. We could, we could talk about Jesus and the man with leprosy 
or the rich young ruler, or the Canaanite woman, or the bleeding woman, or the woman caught in adultery, or the calling of Matthew the tax collector, and on and on. And in all of these, someone has misunderstood God's grace, okay? Someone has distorted God's grace, and they are shocked that Jesus could love somebody because from their point of view, God would never accept someone like that. And that's the camel. That is always the camel. All right? Now, let's pause here for a minute. Okay, let's pause here for a minute. Imagine, imagine if you truly, truly, really believed that God can't tolerate like that person over there. If you really believed God can't stand that person, then why would you tolerate them? Would you? Of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. Couldn't we make all sorts of excuses for treating them badly if that's what we believed? Or couldn't we make all kinds of excuses for turning a blind eye while somebody else picks on them and bullies them and oppresses them? Couldn't we? Of course we would. But like, like, isn't it easy for us to excuse ourselves from loving and serving and befriending others when we believe that God can't stand them? Like, why would we ever feel the need to make room in our lives or in our families or in our church for someone like that whose sins we think are shocking while we think of our sins as normal and natural and to be expected? And so, friends, maybe what we need to realize is that if we don't love and serve and befriend those people, then maybe no matter what we think we believe about the gospel, maybe no matter what we think about Jesus' invitation, maybe what we actually believe is that that person is the exception. Maybe what we actually believe is that God can handle my sin because I'm his favorite, but God can't stand them. Could that be true? I think it is. I think there are many people who think that way. And so we need to be reminded that Jesus isn't shocked by sin. He's not shocked by your sin, and he's not shocked by that person's sin. He's not even shocked by the, thing, by the things, by the sins that we think are intolerable. Jesus is unshockable. Jesus is unshockable. And what if more of his people were unshockable too? Now, in the church, some of the problems and, and disagreements that we have are, are gnats. And I'm not saying that they don't matter. I'm saying that they are not what Jesus would call, quote, the more significant matters of the law. These aren't the more significant matters of the law. These are the sort of things that we can figure out in community over time once we commit to focusing on the bigger matters. And it raises the question, so how are we going to know the difference between a gnat and a camel? How will we know? Well, we will know when we are unshockable like Jesus. Jesus is not shocked when sinners behave like sinners and not saints. That is a gnat for him. For him, that is no problem. The problem is when sinners punish other sinners for not being saints. That's the camel. That's deadly because that's a distortion of the gospel. And so we need to be reminded about the radical nature of the gospel. Okay, friends? Listen, the gospel is not... That once you've sorted out your views and your beliefs and your morals and your lifestyle, once you've sorted all of that out, then Jesus will be interested in you. Then you'll be forgivable. Then he might think about including you in his family. No, no, no. That's not how Jesus works. 
And so why would we? You see, the gospel says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The gospel says that once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you. Isn't that good news? The gospel says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And every time Jesus makes the first move, he doesn't wait for us to fix ourselves and and fix all the gnats first. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. He comes to us first. And no matter how shocking we think our sins are, no matter how shocked we are by the sins of others, Jesus is unshockable. Even though we were lost, even though we were enemies, even though we were sinners, Jesus is unshockable and he came and to find us and that is how he loves us. And friends, if that is how the perfect, sinless, infinite, almighty son of God loves us, how are we going to possibly be shocked by the sins of others? If we really believe that that's how Jesus loves us sinners, how can we possibly be shocked by the sins of others? So, so friends, what I hope we're hearing is this. The church must not be shocked when sinners talk and think and act like sinners, as though their sin is shocking and ours is not. If we want to practice the way of Jesus, then our hearts and our minds and our churches need to be so centered on the gospel that we become unshockable. I really believe that the more that the gospel takes root in a person's heart, the more they realize that Jesus wasn't shocked and repulsed by somebody like me, the less that we can be shocked and repulsed by someone else. The gospel makes the church unshockable. The gospel makes the church unshockable. And that's how we will judge between gnats and camels. That's how we will love those that we would otherwise think of as unlovable. That's how we will tolerate what we might have seen as intolerable. Now, let me close by sharing about a time that I realized that I am part of the problem. Many years ago, I was leading at a church where I was a worship leader, and, and we had a singer uh, on the team, she was. I was playing guitar and vocals, and and she she was kind of a backup vocalist. Um, well, I'll call her Olivia. Olivia was a good friend. She loved Jesus. Also, very attractive woman. Okay, and I remember one Sunday she wore this beautiful white cashmere turtleneck sweater, uh, you know, real big thick turtleneck, and she wore that as she was singing on the stage. It's, it's actually a super modest sweater, as sweaters go, it had, but it had a loose neck, and at one point. Olivia bent down to pick up her water bottle off the floor and a couple of women in the congregation were able to see down her shirt and and they happened to see some cleavage. And they spoke to each other. And then they spoke to the pastor and they asked the pastor to deal with it. Because from their point of view, their husbands don't need that kind of temptation. And then the pastor came and he asked me to deal with it. He came to me and he asked me me to deal with it. Even though I hadn't seen seen it, Um, And and the way that it was explained to me, the problem is, well, she might tempt the men during worship. And so that needs to stop. She needs to stop. We can't have her dressing like that. We can't have someone like that on the stage. And at the time, 
I agree. I saw their point and I figured because she's a friend, I think I thought that I could handle it and I could make her see the problem pretty easily. Well, I was wrong. I was very wrong. And she was crushed and humiliated and she was angry. And I remember she asked like, what do they want me to do? What do they want me to wear? I didn't ask for this body. She was ashamed of her body. She was, she felt objectified. She felt judged and, and, and accused by her church family. And it was awful. I, I hated it. More than that, not just hating it, I, I, I realized it was wrong. I realized we were sinning against Olivia. Because the people who, who saw Olivia's cleavage, they only saw one problem here. The possibility that a man might see cleavage and have a lustful thought, that's the problem that they saw. That's a, But just, I mean, that's a gnat. That's actually a gnat. What they don't realize is that there's a far bigger problem here. The bigger problem is being a community where men's lust is actually the woman's fault. Where a woman's body is a threat. And men fantasizing during worship, that's just something that we expect. Okay? Then the, the, the problem is, is, is where we don't call men to repent. Instead of calling men to repent, we impose a dress code on women. And we're okay with that. We're okay with that, but God forbid there's cleavage. I, like, and, and I can't even think of what the male equivalent of a story like this would be. If, if these were reversed, I have no idea what that it would even look like. Can you think of what that would... What would be the male equivalent of a story like this? I really have no idea. Well, Olivia quit the band shortly after that. And she and her husband left the church. And they are not part of any faith community right now. And um, it just happened that I found her on Facebook a couple of years ago and I wrote to Olivia and I wanted her to know how sorry I was and how much I regretted uh, what happened, how much I care about her and and um, and I just wanted her to know what I would do differently if it ever happened again. And I asked her if she could ever forgive me. She actually wrote me back in like five minutes and thanked me for my message and she forgave me and she was asking me how I'm doing and stuff. But she and her husband, they are no closer to being at home in a church community than they were after this all went down. And it just makes me wonder, like, what does it say about us? What does it say about our worship? What does it say about the strength of our relationships if, if like, an accidental flash of cleavage is a threat? God forbid there's cleavage. Like, that would destroy the church. Is that what we're saying? Like, what if, what if that day we had been an unshockable community for Olivia? What if... What would, what would it have looked like in that situation to deal with the camel and not strain out the gnat? And so let me close with this thought from Bridget Eileen Rivera. I just think this is so helpful. She says, Jesus doesn't rest with the 99 sheep out of 100. He goes out and he searches and he rescues, saving the smallest and most insignificant member of his flock. He isn't happy with saving most of the flock. He works until every last one of his sheep experiences the love and care and mercy of his fold. The heart of Jesus breaks with every broken heart and he mourns with the mistreatment of every vulnerable soul. A day will come when he will look upon each of us and he won't ask us about our 99 friends. He will ask us about the one and he will want to know how we treated the one. And on that day, he will declare, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Let's pray together. 
Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven. Thank you.